My, uh, my uncle, Bob Bunn, my dad's brother, he, he married, and then some years later he divorced, and then some years after that he remarried the same woman that he divorced. Uh, they didn't make much of a fuss about retying the knot. Uh, there was more fuss about the first one than the second one, but they just went to a, a justice of the peace to make it official. And uh, the justice of the peace remarked that uh, Bun is uh, it's an unusual name. It, it's just uh, you, you don't run across that very often, and uh, thankfully, right? But <laughs> but it was doubly unusual for two people named Bun to be getting married to each other. And uh, and they and amazingly, I wasn't there. This is just a family story. But uh, they didn't they didn't let on. They didn't let on, and they just went ahead and just just let it go. And so unbeknownst to the justice of the peace, my Uncle Bob took his first wife and his ex-wife as his second wife, <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. It, it took. It took. Um, the Bible teaches us that in the future, there is going to be a remarriage of heaven and earth after a long time of estrangement. We'll get to that, and you'll see it in a moment. It wasn't the earth's fault that it fell into corruption when man fell in sin, but since man was the capstone of creation, and since he'd been given dominion over all of creation, uh, when man turned away from God, the author of life and the giver of all good and perfect gifts, uh, the creation fell with Adam, with mankind. Uh, the creation itself became subject to the same law of sin and death as Adam and Eve and all their descendants. Something happened to the race. Something happened to the creation that they were made out of, really. It, you know, it, it made out of the dust, and God breathed into Adam the, the breath of life and Eve taken from Adam's side. So, you know, it, out of the, the creation itself fell when they fell. Uh, as, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says the creation was subjected to futility. The creation was subjected to futility. That's the law of sin and death. That's the, that's the corruption. That's the fallenness. The, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And him who subjected it would be the Lord God who subjected it to futility. The way Genesis puts it, or the way, the way God puts it in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. And it wasn't, and really, cursed is the ground. That's, that's shorthand for it, isn't it? That's, the, that's not the half of it, is it? Because it isn't just the ground. It's the, it's the entire uh, creation, the whole creation. Nothing that, it was, nothing that was created in Genesis 1, none of those things are unaffected by the consequences of man's sin. And although there were very definite consequences, we live, among, we live in it. We live in the consequences of it. Um, there's consequences for man's unfaithfulness, man's disobedience to God. God never gave up entirely on man or the creation. 
He, he continued to pursue. He had a plan. and In fact, he announced the core of the plan at this very same time that he's kind of announcing the terms of the curse. Very Embedded in the curse is deliverance will come through the seed of the woman. Deliverance will come through the seed of the woman. One born of a woman would undo this destructive work of the devil uh, and at long last he came he paid the price for both the redemption of mankind and the fallen creation he rose from the dead he ascended into heaven and according to his promise he's coming back to judge both the living and the dead and to bring the full benefits the full consequences the full results of the redemption that he purchased with his own blood and it includes as we've been saying the resurrection of all who are in Christ by faith in him it includes resurrection you know the resurrection of the body for this is the will of my father Jesus said that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day that's really that that's really where we kind of started this this kind of uh, excursion from Re- resurrection Sunday uh, we're really talking about what have we been talking about since Resurrection Sunday is the is the implications of uh, the Bible's teaching about the resurrection, which the Bible consistently presents as a future event, as something that hasn't happened yet, even for those who are in heaven now, even for those who have died in Christ, as something coming in the future when He comes. And actually, our jumping-off point was you know, into this line of thinking, you know, what are the implications of that is from 1 Corinthians 15, 20. That's kind of our launch point. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then... At his coming, like we've said today, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And in those words, you know, at his coming, that it's a future event, it, it points us to a grander, uh, a, a, a better, that's not even a word, is it grander? More grand, better, superior future than going to heaven when we die. Which the Bible, of course, the Bible presents that going to heaven when we die in Christ. It presents that as our immediate hope beyond death. Something far better than the present state, but not our ultimate hope, not our ultimate destiny. The ultimate Christian hope, and this is borne out consistently, repeatedly in the New Testament, the ultimate hope for the forever future is not believers going to heaven to live with Jesus there forever, but the ultimate Christian hope. We even see it in the Lord's Supper. We do this until He comes. Not until we go to heaven. Until He comes. The, the ultimate Christian hope is Christ returning from heaven to the earth to establish His forever kingdom over the earth and all creation beyond that. 
And thus the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's taught us to pray, or the disciples' prayer, or the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's, it's fully and finally answered, Thy kingdom come. Jesus said, pray this way. Thy kingdom come. And I can't get King James out of my head. Your, our Bible says, you know, your kingdom come. But thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is presently in heaven. And the central feature of the kingdom of God when it comes is that God's will will be done on the earth the way it is already being done in heaven. And at no point, at no point in human history since Adam's sin has that been the case. Yet, Jesus told us to pray for it, but that request, as many times as the Lord's Prayer has been prayed, that request has not yet been answered fully. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's no, there's no violence or murder in heaven because God's will is done there in a way it's not done here. Now, there's no human trafficking in, in heaven because God's will prevails there. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no death. Why not? God's will is done there. And you only have to, you know, you only have to pick up a newspaper or turn on the television to realize that God's will is not presently being done in the same way that it is done in heaven. And, and you really don't need a newspaper or television, do you? You can just pay attention to your own life. You, know, you can just, just kind of look with eyes to see what, what, how things work at school or, or at your job or in your neighborhood or in your family or even, even if you just consider the... If you know yourself, you have any kind of self-awareness at all, just consider the complex and conflicted you know, labyrinth of your own soul. You know, why am I the way I am? And you realize that God's will is not presently being accomplished and fulfilled in this, in this earthly life, in this present life, the way it is being done in heaven. I mean, you think of, you don't have to pick up a newspaper, don't have to turn on the television, don't have to look around you at all the other people that have problems, even just consider yourself. Think, if I was in heaven, would I be different? Yes, you would. You'll have to be. We'll all have to be. And the, the, the great biblical hope, you know, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. The great biblical hope is that God's kingdom is coming. Not we all get to leave sometimes. That God's kingdom is coming. And why is God's kingdom coming? Because the king is coming. He promised he would. He promised he would. The Word promises He would. The angels promises He would. The Bible does. The Father does. The Bible ends. You know, we like last few verses. Come. Come. The great biblical hope is Maranatha, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16. 
Come, Lord Jesus. It isn't. I mean, the great, the ultimate hope, the ultimate hope for the forever future is not, I can't wait to get there. That's not it. Like I said, that is our immediate hope. When we die, we're going somewhere. And of course, it's our immediate hope to go where he is. And Paul even says it's far better. It's far better than what we have now. But that's not the ultimate hope. It isn't, I can't wait to go there. This is what the great hope is. This is what the ultimate hope is. And you see it again and again in the New Testament. I won't go over it again, but we've looked at a lot of them in the last few couple of weeks. It isn't, I can't wait to go there. It's, I can't wait for him to come here. That's it. And the, the Bible even teaches, now I won't, this First Thessalonians 4, I won't turn there, but you'll, and I think for most of you, you'll just, you'll, it'll come to mind. But the Bible even teaches that when the Lord returns, he will bring with him those who are in heaven now. Those who have fallen asleep. We would be sadly mistaken to imagine Jesus returning with a great multitude of disgruntled heaven dwellers who are who have been, you know, yanked out of their mansions and and uh, you know on Gold Street and brought back to this rotten place. Why do we have to do that? I'm already in heaven. Why do I want to go back there? You know, as much as as life in heaven now, and this is really where we talked about a lot last week, as, as much better as life in heaven is for those who are there now than life in this sin-sick, death-infected world, those in heaven now are looking forward with anticipation to his return, Christ's return, what that means for them, the resurrection of their, the completion of their salvation, the resurrection of all who are in Christ together at the same time. So what comes, what comes after uh, the resurrection event? Still to, play, to take place in the future. Hasn't happened yet. What comes after that? What's, in other words, what's the forever future beyond the immediate hope, the immediate hope, of going to heaven when we die, which of course we have that. I'm not trying to take that away. It's just not the forever part. It's not forever. What is it? It begins with a wedding. It begins with a wedding. A a beautiful and a grand wedding. Uh, And it's a wedding of parties that have long been estranged from one another have been brought together in Christ. They've long been estranged, but the groom at this wedding never stopped pursuing, never stopped providing, never stopped loving, and in the end, his will will prevail. You know, in the Bible, we come to the forever future, and I'm using that term forever future, sometimes the eternal state. You know, what's to be forever and ever and ever? We come to what is the forever future appropriately enough in the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. And for those of you who have studied biblical eschatology, you know the doctrine of last things. 
uh, just to remind you, and, you if, and if you haven't, you're going to hear some terms that I'm not going to explain, just you know, kind of set it aside for now, but if you're familiar with the terms, you know, just take the point. The millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, that's Revelation 20. That's already come in, in the Bible, and it's Revelation chapter 20. Also in Revelation 20 is the final rebellion, the final defeat of Satan, and he's cast into the lake of fire. That's, that's Revelation 20. That's in the chapter before, where he will remain, it says, forever and ever. Revelation 20 also covers what you may know, if you like, if you study these terms before, the great white throne judgment. That's in the chapter before. That's already come. It's not already come from our, from our perspective, but in, in Revelation, it's, it's presented in Revelation chapter 20. This final judgment of all whose names are not found in the book of life, that is, those who, who have rejected eternal life through faith in Christ. That's, Re that's in Revelation 20 as well. And we get to 21. We get to, what do we get to in chapter 21 and 22? We come to what comes after all of that and what is to be our forever and it begins with a wedding of, of heaven and earth that has so long been separated. Separated by the sin, by the by the curse of sin and death. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I, I want to clear the decks of a couple of things that tend to distract us from what I think is really the much bigger idea that we really ought to see in these verses, and, and we really need to see it. The first is for those who may think, and you know, we read this, and the first thought is, what, no sea? No sea? I mean, no beach? No fun in the sun, the sand, no frisbee, no beach balls, no, you know, no kites, no snorkeling, you know, no Myrtle Beach, no redneck Riviera, you know, what, no woods. That doesn't sound so great. That, that worries me. That doesn't sound so great. Well, we, we have to remember that, that we don't live in the ancient world. Uh, you know, we, we come from a different, you know, our, our, our culture's different, our lives are different. We look at the sea, the sea, differently than people who lived at the time, the Apostle John, and even before that, and even after that, see it. And he receives this vision that we know is the book of Revelation. And for the ancients, the sea is not a vacation place. It's a, it's a place of danger. It's a, a place of foreboding. It's, it's a, there's real danger there of being lost or being devoured. And, and, you're, and really, it's still probably the wise. Or, you know, they, it's good to keep in mind that the, the sea is not to be trifled with. You know, it is dangerous that it's fun, but it has to be respected, you know. That, and so it's, it's, it, we still have some of that. But for them, it was you know, all of that. It's a, it's a place of dangerous foreboding. And in the Bible, it becomes even more than that. The sea 
in the Bible becomes a symbol for uh, chaos, for unrest, for violence, for rebellion against God. Even in Revelation. Even in Revelation. uh, John sees the Antichrist, this Revelation 13, quote, rising out of the sea. That's how the Antichrist's arrival is is uh, you know is announced he's rise out of the sea. It's the same imagery that Daniel uses, or really that God uses in the book of Daniel. He reveals him uh, his his uh, the future to the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel sees these four great beasts uh, representing successive godless human governments coming up out of the sea. You know, it's Daniel chapter seven. These these beasts, godless beasts, is human governments. Isaiah 57 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. You know, it's a, I mean, that's what they thought of when, with the sea. The creation account, Genesis 1, you know, begins with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of chaos that covers the earth. Jude, in the New Testament, he warns of false believers, you know, coming into the church and and upsetting the church with, with false teaching. He warns that they are these false false believers, these tares, are like, quote, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. You know, that's that's what the sea is. You know, you consider it like as a this biblical image. And so in the biblical and the cultural context, this idea of no longer being any sea it carries the connotation of no longer being any moral chaos, no longer being in this uh, this tumultuous, you know, and violent and sinful, you know, a, a man uh, rebelling against God. Uh, no more of this. No more evil. They would they would look at it and they say no more evil. And as far as not being able to visit a large body of water, if you're afraid, you know that. You know, as they say, too much symbolism. I'd rather see topography, not symbolism. You know, if you're still worried about that, I encourage you to take hope in the great water, the great river of the water of life that flows out from the throne. And you know, rivers got to empty somewhere, right? Into a body of water. And so just plan your vacation for there if you're of the same mind then as you are right now. Take hope. The second kind of potential distraction from what I think is the main idea that we should get out of this is this question of whether the new heavens and new earth, new heavens, new earth, the old has passed away, whether that will be a completely new, like like the theologians say, ex nihilo creation, from nothing creation, completely new, doesn't exist now, a, a brand new creation, uh, the present heaven, the present earth having been annihilated or passing out of existence entirely, or whether the new heaven and the new earth will be the fallen, uh, the present heaven and earth recovered, remade, reborn, redeemed. I, th- I think that the continuity between the old fallen earth and the new earth is, is rather important. And, and more importantly than that, uh, biblically indicated, the, the language here of passing away, 
uh, and something new coming in its place. It's also used, very clearly, of what happens to us when we come to Christ in faith. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Same language. When someone is saved, when a person has become a new creation in Christ, there's both, let me make this point, there's both difference, there's, there's com- something completely different, and there is also continuity, and both of those things, the, the discontinuity and the continuity, the difference and the, and the, the uh, identity with the old, they're both necessary if salvation in Christ is not to be emptied of its glory. You need them both. Salvation is not, all right, on the, on the different side, salvation is not a mere change of status before God, as, as is sometimes thought. The saved person, it's not just a new status. It's not just new paperwork. It's not being on a different list. Only the one who is saved is actually changed, right, in the inner man, transformed. His mind, his heart is changed. His relationship with sin has changed forever. It's not the same as it was. He's been brought into a, a very real and vital and new relationship with God. And he is, in many ways, a different person. And people say so. People notice. You're not the same. If they knew you then and knew you not, you're not the same. And sometimes they even say it just that way. You're not the, you don't seem like the same person. And they're right. You know, where that, and I, you have to say this as well, where that kind of quickening of spiritual life, where that difference is, just can't be seen, it re, it's really meaningless to say, I've been saved. Where there's just, just, there's no salvation where there's no difference, ultimately, between what you were and what you are. Difference is important, isn't it? New, new is important. But at the same time, and in the same measure, the glory of salvation lies in the fact that it was the old you who was made new. It's what you, you know, it's, it's the old one that's been transformed, the transforming power of God in your life. I once was lost but now I'm saved. I was blind, but now I see. I was alienated from God, separated from Christ. Now I'm at peace with God. I'm a brother of Christ by adoption. I'm in the family. I used to be an enemy. Now I'm in the family. But the glory of it is that one who's in the family used to be an enemy. Transformed. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, this is Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not annihilating the sinner, 
getting rid of that person who once was and putting in something, putting in something that's completely different, completely different, completely new, in their, something that just looks just like them in their place. That's not salvation. Jesus didn't march the blind off into a pit and get rid of them and then create brand new seeing people that look just like them in their place. He made blind people to see. The glory of salvation is not replacement. It's redemption. It's restoration. It's resurrection. So as a sinner, I'll speak of myself, as a sinner being still in process, transformed into, the, into a saint by the power of God through faith in Christ, just from my perspective, and I think it should be yours too, the continuity between the old and the new is rather important to me. We like to say, hate the sin, love the sinner, don't we? We like to say that, hate, hate the sin, love the sinner. And while I have trouble applying that principle to certain sinners who are particularly annoying, while I have trouble with that sometimes, really doing that, I have no trouble doing that with moi. No trouble at all. That's exactly how I feel about myself. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. So I say, go ahead, Lord. Destroy the sin in me. But save that sinner. I've become fond of him. (laughs) I want him to be rescued, renewed, recovered. And what happens to us in salvation is the pattern of what will happen to the creation, including this little speck of creation uh, that uh, we call the earth. And to finish out the thought from Romans chapter 8, that we've read part of it, but let me finish it up. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so when I read in Revelation 21, you don't have to, but I think it's important, this continuity between the old and the new. When I read in Revelation 21, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I thank God that he will make all things new, including me, instead of all new things, including me. But whether or not there will be continuity between the present heaven and present earth and the new heavens and new earth, I still think, I think it's important that there is that continuity, but there's something bigger in these verses themselves. You know, you should set those things aside. You know, no matter what you think about that, set it aside. Because the bigger idea, you know, is, is what comes next. And that is that in the forever future, heaven and earth are joined together as a man 
is joined to a wife. I saw the holy city, is verse 2, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a wedding. Ephesians 5 teaches us that human marriage is a divinely intended picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. And even, even married Christian people hardly ever think about that. They, they mostly think about, is this, is this arrangement serving the cause of my happiness well enough? That's how we usually think of it, even as Christians. But Ephesians says it's, about, it's a picture of Christ and the church. And Revelation 21-2 is the bride coming down the aisle. That's what it is. And she has been made glorious. She takes... I, I get, I get, the, I get a, a special place, you know, a lot of weddings, right? Because I conduct weddings and I get to see how, you know, how often the groom's breath is taken away. She's hid herself for some time. You know, she hasn't let him see. And because she, she doesn't want him to see before. But when she wants him to see then. And, you know, and you know, at a proper wedding, there is there is no there's no question about who the center of attention is. Everybody doesn't stand up when the groom and his other drones walk in. Stand up when the bride comes in. That's when the big music starts, right? It, you don't have the groom walking down this aisle and the bride walking down the aisle and coming together. No, it's the bride made, made glorious. Revelation 21, a little further down, 9. An angel says to the Apostle John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a, a jasper, clear as crystal. Ephesians 5 kind of takes it out of the image and puts it more in, in more plainly, where it tells, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's the new Jerusalem. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a synonym for the church. It's, a, it's, a, it's where the church lives. It's where the saints live. But it's also, it can be used as a, the church itself, the saints. And here's this sanctified church, the New Jerusalem, has been made holy, entirely righteous. She's splendorous, without spot, wrinkle, blemish. She's holy. And here she comes. This is Revelation 21. She, here she comes down the aisle from heaven to the new earth. And if you're in Christ, it's, it's you. You're a part of that. Having been and I think it's important. Made holy. Made righteous. Made new. You know, and when, when I conduct a, a wedding ceremony, I, I almost always include this language. I remind the couple, maybe always, maybe 100% of the time. From this day forward, 
you will enter upon a new relationship to one another, a union that is so significant, so profound, so indivisible, that God himself shall regard the two of you as one flesh together. Something new happens. What happens, Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven? Here's what happens. It's the next verses. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Notice it isn't the other way around. It isn't man has gone to God, God, man has gone to share God's dwelling place. It's, It's the other way. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Same orientation. He will dwell with them. Not they will go dwell with him. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Once again, it's God coming to them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. And skipping down, going to the next chapter, they will see his face and they will reign forever and ever. And they lived happily ever after. That is what the human heart longs for. For life to be as it should be, as it as we were meant to live it. And we sense it somehow, even though this place has been corrupted from the very beginning of our acquaintance with it. We've never known it to be other than the way it is, but we long for something else. That's what, You know what? That couple that meet down here, that's what they're longing for. Life to be as it, ought, as it should be, as it can be, as they dare to think it can be. They, they long for a relationship unspoiled by sin. And even at its best, even at its best, what's coming for them is just a, even though it's good, it's satisfying, and it's right, and it's holy, even at its best, that marriage they have with one another is a, it's just a shadow and a promise of the marriage that's coming. The world made right. The world as it ought to be. Because of the groom. (laughs) The sacrificial head who provides, protects, who leads. And and it's it's not only God we seek in those kinds of relationships or in other relationships... It's in all the other things we seek as well. You know, the pursuit of happiness that we make a lot of in this, in this country. You know, at its root, whether we know it or not, is a pursuit for God. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I say that. Because all the other pursuits eventually reveal themselves as, as vanities. And in the end, they die with us. You know, wealth or pleasure, whatever it is. It's not what we seek isn't to be found there ultimately. And we're all like Abraham, uh, seeking that city whose designer and builder is God. Well, a few of us realize it, but that's what we want. 
In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote it famously. It's a famous quote. He wrote, this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. The good news, the best news, is that which we long for, a future worth living for, a future worth hoping for, a future even worth sacrificing for. It's ours if Christ is ours and we're his. He, this is not the Bible, it's a song, but it's a He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And it isn't in this present fallen and sinful dying world where life is to be lived at its fullest. It's in the one to come. It's like we're living in black and white now, colors coming. Or we're living in standard definition now and HD is coming. It's uh, it's like no matter how good it is, this is the shadow. The, the great and good and wonderful marriage, It's that's the shadow. The, the light of day, is the fullness of the light of day is what's coming. You're, you're not going to miss a thing about your life now because the only thing that will be missing is sin and its bitter fruits. And, and you know, if you truly miss the sin, then you're not going anywhere. You know more because of what's coming because the New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God and going to be that place of connection between heaven and earth forever and ever. You know more about the forever future now than you think you know. Because it'll be life as you know it. As amazing as this is, it's hard for this to separate. Life as you know it apart from sin and death without any of that and, and that's hard to think of because it taints everything in the age that's coming and we won't we can justify it at a later date and maybe, but some scriptural things will come to mind there is coming there's going there's eating there's drinking there is creative and satisfying work as we serve the Lord and we reign with Him forever and ever. There's a God-given and a good rhythm of life, of work and rest and worship, and I think even, I could even argue for play. The lame will leap like a deer. Why, is it his job? No, because it's enjoyable and he can Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology writes, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever, but in fact the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. The Anglican theologian N.T. Wright, he writes in his book Surprised by Hope, and he's really talking, he's talking about our passage today. 
And when we come to the picture of the actual end, or eternal state or forever future, when we come to the picture of the actual end in Revelation 21 and 22, we find not ransomed souls making their way to a disembodied heaven, but rather the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth, uniting the two in lasting embrace, and we are all looking forward to that lasting embrace. Whether we've let ourselves know that or not, Christ is the way to that future. He's the only way. If He's yours, you can rejoice in what's coming. As we began with this at Resurrection Sunday, borrow some of that joy. <laughs> borrow that joy from the future. And really, let it give you strength to endure the present trials that God has allowed in your life for your sanctification. Let it get you through. Even Jesus, even Jesus, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Endure your cross with looking to the joy set before you. And if he's not yours, ask him to make you his own, and he will. He will. That's not a prayer that's ever answered no. Lord, let me be my Lord, be my Savior. Save me. This is the will of my Father, he says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Depend on that promise. Come to Him, and, and let your heart begin to long, not for death, even though it takes us where He is, not for death, but for Him to come and raise us all, all who are in Him, and to enter His and our forever future. All right, let's pray. Lord, we know, because You've told us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And Lord, we know that neither are the pleasures of this present time always as they are, tainted by sin, threatened by death, neither are they worthy of compare with the eternal life that's promised us in Christ in an age when, in which righteousness will truly be at home, as your word says. Wash away by the overwhelming greatness of, of the promises of your word. Wash away any secret or nagging doubts that make us think or behave as though life in this sinful and fallen world is where life at its best is to be found and that what comes next and what comes forever will in any way be a step down or disappointing. May we take Jesus as our model who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, enduring our trials for the joy set before us. Increase the faith of the believing and let the beginnings of faith come to life in any who have not believed in Christ and who have no reason for hope beyond this present brief and fleeting life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.